0: August 2022, the FBI is kicking down doors, slamming men into the ground in front of screaming wives and children. On paper, these guys have legitimate businesses, a coffee bar, a soccer club, and, well, Sal the shoemaker, he repairs shoes. But what they're really good at is violence. Making people offers they can't refuse, just as a message on one of the men's phones revealed, tell him I'm going to put him under the bleepin' bridge. And you thought that kind of thing didn't happen anymore? It does, and today you'll see how one simple law destroyed the mafia. As some of you might know, in the 19th century, Sicilian men whose families had lived as peasants for many years decided it was time to get equal with the rich landowners. These men formed clans whose main enterprise was demanding protection money from the landowners, people often working in lucrative citrus businesses. If the cash wasn't forthcoming, that usually meant the appearance of knives or shotguns. Simple business plan, but very effective. It's called extortion. You create a threat, which is you, and then you tell people they have to pay you to protect them from that threat. Genius. These mafiosi guys were a mystery to most people. Behind closed doors, they swore to secrecy, to act like men of honor. Never ever was their enterprise to be spoken of. Yep, like Fight Club, but with guns. They paid off cops and corrupt politicians, and were soon a force to be reckoned with. But these Sicilians wanted to branch out, and what better place than the United States of America? The US had been going through a rapid change in terms of industrialization. It was becoming the powerhouse it is today. And where there's plenty of money, there's always plenty of opportunities to steal it. During the period from about 1880 to 1920, the US opened its doors to Europeans. In the 1890s alone, about 600,000 Italians made the trip to America. About 4 million of them had migrated to the US by 1920. Most of them came to make an honest living, but for others, the US was a pot of gold that was ripe for exploitation. These men of honor arrived in droves to New York, New Orleans, and Chicago with the explicit intention of milking America. They weren't yet the very organized crime group we now call the Italian-American Mafia, but it wouldn't be long until they made crime more formal, until they agreed there should be certain rules to the game. Looking at American newspapers in the early 20th century, you can find many articles talking about a new crime wave. Some stories mention black hand gangs, noting that Sicilian immigrants were now extorting people just as they'd done back home. In 1909, the New York Times reported about some of those dastardly Sicilians, assassins according to the Times, who'd shot down Lieutenant Joseph Petrosino, who before his demise had been the head of the Italian squad for the New York police. He was really the first ever mafia cop in America. He knew all about the Sicilian gangs and their extortion rackets, so being incorruptible, he had to go. Negative stories about cold-blooded Italian immigrants became quite common, causing a whole lot of discrimination, sometimes violent discrimination, against Italians in the US. This was how the Mafia got going, and given that so many immigrants lived in squalor, it wasn't hard finding new recruits. New York became a crime hub for the new Italians, although the gangs also spread out to other cities. They extorted other immigrants for protection money, just as they'd done in Italy, embracing Business Plan 1, They also expanded into the heroin business. Just as the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Chief Harry Anslinger was warning about this grave new threat to good white folks, he was extremely racist. His men were being paid off by the gangs. Business Plan Part 2. Pay off your enemies, the police. If they don't abide, shoot them. This is also really effective at the fundamental business level. The Mafia was now more than just a bunch of former peasants turned petty extorters. It was a mega dollar drug importation business, and it was about to get even bigger. When the U.S. made the immeasurable mistake of banning alcohol in 1920 under the prohibition laws, the gangsters really got going. Business Plan Part 3. Hope stuff gets banned, that everyone wants, and then sell it to them at high rates because it's illegal. Use in conjunction with Business Plan 2. They expanded further, spreading like a deadly virus, using Tommy guns to mow down anyone in their way, and paying off officials to ensure they don't end up behind bars. In the mid-1920s, it's estimated that 1,300 gangs plagued the city of Chicago alone. The FBI says at that time, the US saw about 12,000 murders a year, many of them mobster-related. A cancer had metastasized in America, and law enforcement was not equipped to stop its spread. People like Al Capone, who'd grown up on the tough streets of New York City watching the first generation of Italian gangsters, became incredibly rich under prohibition. As a teenager, Capone had been part of the Five Points Gang in New York, as had Charles Lucky Luciano, the man who made organized crime more organized, forming a kind of corporation after seeing various crime groups killing each other. Luciano created the commission, which was supposed to oversee matters pertaining to business and violence when it involved different alliances. Now that cancer was in the bones, the heart, and the brain, it was in all the major organs of American society, after only a couple of decades of simple men following simple business plans. In New York, there were five families- Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Luchesi. And there were also the Chicago outfit and the Buffalo crime family. As you'll see soon, there still are five main families, but they're nothing today like they were back in the 1930s. Under the rules of the commission, the families were supposed to toe the line, act like men of honor should, and help each other when it came to taking out enemies or paying politicians. Even with an organizing body, there were regular turf wars, where blood painted the streets of the US as cities, which was never good for business in the long run, as it compelled the cops, even if they were as crooked as a barrel of fishhooks, to take action. It wasn't just the Italian mafia, the Jewish mafia, and the Irish mobs all wanted a bigger piece of that massive American pie. They were everywhere, involved in extortion, construction, gambling, and lots of murder. In the 1930s, the Italian and Jewish mobs even formed a contract killing company, brazenly naming it Murder Inc. For anywhere from a thousand bucks to five thousand bucks, about twenty thousand to a hundred thousand today, they'd take someone out, more money for high-profile folks, such as officials. Albert the Mad Hatter Anastasia, who ran Murder Inc. for a time, was given the title Lord High Executioner. What does that tell you about their confidence, giving each other funny titles like that? These men thought they could do whatever they wanted. They believed they were untouchable. Even when the cops did arrest a mobster, witnesses would either sometimes go missing or suddenly decide it wasn't in their best interest to testify. The authorities were fighting a losing battle, and no matter how many special units they dedicated to organized crime, they barely even made a dent in it. Through the 40s and 50s and 60s, the Mafia seeped like salt water into the steel foundations of the US. They corroded and corrupted the structures there to protect people from people like them, running casinos in Las Vegas and infiltrating the unions that were supposed to be the backbone of the American worker. They were so big that law enforcement struggled to keep up, and so powerful that they had significant political clout. Even if the police did see positive results in their investigations and witnesses were willing to testify, connecting the bosses to those crimes was close to impossible. The authorities needed a much bigger net they could cast over this powerful organization. They needed a giant web that mobsters couldn't easily wriggle out of. This is when the government became a spider, spinning the biggest web it had ever spun in the history of US law enforcement in 1970. They introduced the RICO Act, aka the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. If it sounds vague, that was the point. It was meant to be vague. What it meant is that an underling, a mere street guy, could be arrested. But then the government could arrest the boss or bosses of a family by proving they were connected to this guy. They could say that they were all part of one criminal enterprise, even if the boss's footprints had been nowhere near any crime. Now all the authorities had to do was prove that the boss had gained an income from this enterprise, or that he'd somehow been part of its operation. The law stated he might only have to be found guilty of showing interest in the running of a criminal enterprise, which, let's face it, is a pretty big web. Catching someone red-handed didn't come into it anymore, not if the cops could prove there'd been a conspiracy among men to make money through illicit means. Dominoes were about to fall. but the authorities needed time to work their cases. To charge someone under the RICO Act, they had to connect them to racketeering, and 35 crimes could be linked with this. Some of them were bribery, murder, gambling, drug dealing and trafficking, and importantly mail and wire fraud, which further expanded the net. Just using the phone to communicate about crimes in the vaguest way could get a man arrested. This is why the mafia became so damn distrustful of phones. They were so often bugged. Now the old business plan didn't work so well, they had to create a new one. Don't talk business on the phone. To charge someone under the RICO Act, investigators had to prove two of the 35 crimes had been committed within a span of 10 years, and then they could accuse the person of being part of a criminal enterprise. In 1979, it's how they would have got Carmine Galante. He was a high-ranking member of the Bonanno crime family, but before the cops could seal his fate with RICO, he was shot down in the street in Brooklyn, a cigar still held between his dead lips as he slumped down. His nickname was The Cigar, due to his fondness for those big fat Cubans. His executioners might have well stuck a cigar in his mouth, since a less formal business strategy of the mafia was always keep a sense of humor and whenever it was warranted, symbolize the death. After all, greedy Galante had gotten too big for his boots. For that, he got a cigar. The Genovese crime family boss, Frank Thierry, with some other bosses, had decided that Galante was trying to take over the narcotics business, and that was that. It was time for him to go. So, Galante was eating with two other mobsters and his Sicilian bodyguards when three men in ski masks armed with handguns and shotguns filled the three men's bodies with bullets. As for Thierry, it seems his fate was also sealed, but not with bullets. This guy was already an old-timer in 1980. He made a trip to the US from Naples with his family back in 1911, and by the time the 70s arrived, he'd worked his way up to acting boss of the Genovese family. If you've ever heard the high-earning, former mafia capo Michael Franzese talk about his old life, you'll know that there are two kinds of mobsters. The thinkers-slash-earners, and the outright violent hoodlums. Thierry was the former, a great earner for families and a man who preferred diplomacy to violence. This wily mobster survived so long because of his intelligence, but when the RICO Act came into effect, brains didn't matter so much. In 1980, the 76-year-old Thierry became the first mobster to be convicted under the RICO Act, showing up to his day in court in a wheelchair while huffing on an oxygen tank. He was told he was the boss of a family of La Cosa Nostra. As he listened to the judge Thomas P. Garisa in the New York City court, he shook his head as the murders he was supposedly involved in were listed. When the judge asked him if he had anything to say about it, he replied, I'm a sick man, very sick. He wasn't lying. He was only two months into his 10-year prison sentence when he gave up the ghost, apparently from natural causes. Was he really involved in those murders the judge had mentioned? Maybe, maybe not. It didn't matter they had enough evidence to get him on racketeering. The New York Times wrote at the time that two of the predicate crimes Thierry had committed were threats to a restaurant owner and fraud at the Westchester Premier Theater. The alleged murders didn't matter. Being part of a criminal enterprise that murdered people did. As Franzese had said on his YouTube channel, once Rico came into effect, they could connect mafia guys to anything. Many guys went down for crimes they had no part in, including Franzese's own father, who says he has no part whatsoever in a bank robbery he'd been accused of orchestrating. Now everyone was paranoid. The bosses felt like prey in a system they'd navigated with success for many years. The trusty business plans they'd relied on for decades no longer worked, or not as well. In 1985, Paul Castellano, the boss of the Gambino crime family, another guy that had arrived in the US during the mass immigration period, got his day in court, again because of the RICO Act. This was another mobster that preferred using his intelligence over his fists and guns, and oh boy, did he have fingers and many pies, legitimate and criminal. He was head of the Gambino family when they got him on racketeering charges. He paid $3 million in bail and was shot down outside a Manhattan steakhouse about 10 months later. The commission never sanctioned the hit, but it seems John Gotti, also of the Gambino family, had gone behind the commission's back to do it. That was a very risky thing to do, but Gotti knew he needed Castellano out of the way if he was to carry on his lucrative drugs business that Castellano had unequivocally banned. The two never got along anyway, and Gotti thought Castellano was a weak boss. Castellano would have gotten life in prison. Even so, Gotti had taken a major risk whacking a boss without approval. Gotti had some balls on him, but then he did get the nickname Teflon Don. This wasn't so much because he got away with killing another boss, but that every time the cops thought they had him, he somehow managed to avoid prison. Gotti enjoyed acting like a movie star gangster, but make no mistake, behind that dapper appeal, he was cunning and ruthless and hard to pin down, even with Rico. As Gotti enjoyed his freedom and wealth, the dominoes fell one by one. Genovese boss Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, said to be the most powerful boss of them all, was sentenced to 100 years in 1986. At that same trial, called the Mafia Commission Trial, Anthony Tony Dux Carallo, boss of the Lucese family was also hit with 100 years. Bonanno crime family boss Philip Rusty Rustelli was also charged, but since he'd been kicked off the commission after Donnie Brasco had infiltrated his outfit, he was convicted of racketeering charges, but not as part of the same trial. They all came tumbling down, not just the bosses but the underbosses too, and at least one capo and one consigliere, all thanks to Rico. It was as if someone had spent close to eight decades weaving a tapestry of criminality, and almost overnight, its very fabric was being ripped to shreds. Nicodemo Scarfo, the boss of the Philadelphia crime family, was convicted on RICO charges in 1988. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, another guy with a YouTube channel now who was once a ruthless killer and underboss of the Gambino family, was convicted of racketeering in 1991. These days, he's more likely to tell you that if you like his content, please share and subscribe, rather than make you an offer you can't refuse. Gravano turned state's witness, which is partly how the most powerful boss at the time, Gotti, was hit with a whole bunch of charges and then sentenced to life. RICO is still used today, with its web now expanded to biker gangs, street gangs, or when organized crime from abroad enters America, such as the Russian Mafia, the Japanese Yakuza, the Chinese Triads, or the many gangs south and far south of the American border. Not long ago, the Justice Department proudly announced it had arrested 27 guys on RICO charges, all linked to the Russian crime syndicate. And as we told you at the start, 9 guys belonging to the Italian-American Mafia were just arrested under RICO charges. They all worked together but belonged to two families, Ginovese and Bonanno. People old enough read the headlines in the newspapers and thought, ah, it's just like the old days. They were all captains and soldiers working in New York and Florida, who, according to the Department of Justice, were polluting communities with illegal gambling, extortion and violence, while using our financial system in service to their criminal schemes. So the next time you get your shoes repaired, or grab a coffee at a quiet place famed for its Italian pastries and gelato, or perhaps join a soccer team with an Italian name. Just open your eyes, because what you see in front of you might be something else. Just make sure you don't get in debt there, because there's a bridge somewhere in America just right for your final resting place. And whatever you do, don't say the word Rico. They hate that. Now you need to see what's happening these days, and what does the Mafia even do anymore? Or have a look at New York Mafia Families today.